church is our primary family. Uh, we like to point out that when Jesus um, was sitting with his disciples, he said to them, these are my brothers and sisters. And he said that with an earshot of Mother Mary. So we believe that the church is our first family. We make much of the reality that God the Spirit makes us sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And so we are in his house And we are most properly identified as a child in his house. And that's our primary identity. And so while I say that, I'm excited. I was so blessed to be away, to have rest. I will also say I missed my home. And it's good to be back. Now, one of the first things I did when my sabbatical ended is to reconnect with the leaders of this church. And they uh, because they left me alone all summer. God bless them. And so we reconnected on Sunday uh, to catch up and to enjoy time with each other. And toward the end of our time together, I asked them a question that hadn't been on my mind for 11 weeks. I asked them, so what am I preaching on next Sunday? And we decided that we would return to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, first Corinthians. But before we do that, they requested that I share with you things that I learned during my sabbatical. And so that's what I intend to do for the next two weeks. Uh, but first, before we dig in, uh, let's invite the Spirit uh, to be here during this time. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to empower my words to make your presence not just known or confessed, but felt. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make this time a supernatural encounter with the living God. We open our hearts to you now. And we are expecting you to show up. Holy Spirit, come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about halfway through my sabbatical, I realized I was doing it all wrong. What I mean is this, going into sabbatical, I thought Sabbath rest was all about the future. About recharging for what lies ahead. And so even though my body was resting from activity, my mind wasn't. I was furiously planning. I was constantly thinking about ministry would look like when I re-entered. And this stressed me out to no end. But my wife was doing a Bible study on Sabbath rest and she looked at me one morning and she said, Joe, uh, I'm learning that Sabbath rest is not so much about looking forward to make plans as it is looking backward to give thanks. She said, think about it. God rested on the seventh day to enjoy what he had made. And if his Sabbath rest is the model for our Sabbath rest, then we should do the same. Light bulb on. Light bulb on. You see, I thought Sabbath was about goals. And my wife reminded me that Sabbath, she didn't remind me, she taught me that Sabbath is all about gratitude in the Lord. And that insight turned my entire sabbatical upside down. And so while I entered in planning and stressing about an unknown future, I stopped doing that. And I started remembering all that God has done in my life in the past 10 years, all that God has done in this community in those same years. And we have so much to be thankful for. 
And guess what? That's more restful. And when I stopped and I looked at my last 10 years uh, with Jesus, I started to get a better grasp on how God has shaped me for ministry. And so I asked God to help me craft a statement, a mission statement, an accurate, a more accurate mission statement for my life. I said, God, in light of all that I'm clearly gifted in, God, in light of all that I'm clearly not gifted in, God, in light of all that I've experienced in my story the past 10 years, all the pain, all the joy, all the success, all the failure, in light of all of that, Lord, would you please give me an accurate mission statement for my life? See, I came out of seminary 10 years ago with a mission statement that I crafted for a class. And I read that mission statement today, and I don't recognize that person at all. And so I was eager, and I was asking God to do that, and he answered that prayer. And what I'd like to say this morning is that we all should do that. We should all ask God those three questions. God, what have you clearly gifted me in? God, what am I clearly not gifted in? And God, how does my story come to bear on this? And would you give me, even just for the next year, a mission statement? See, a personal mission statement, I'm convinced, is like a plumb line. If you don't know what a plumb line is, it's a piece of string with a weight at the bottom of it. And so a plumb line, thanks to gravity, is always pointing straight down. And so if you're building a wall or a building with bricks or stone, it's very much recommended to hang a plumb line at the topmost brick and to see if what you are building is actually going up so that it doesn't crumble the next time you set a stone down. Most of us are furiously building a wall right now. But they are crooked walls about to crash. We're seeking promotions at work. We're finding the best school for our kids. We're pursuing or not pursuing a dating relationship. We're buying a car. We're volunteering for this. We're volunteering for that. We're volunteering for this. We're volunteering for that. We're volunteering. Get the idea? There's so much to volunteer for, to do, to take on, to think about. And we're laying stone after stone after stone after stone after stone. We get an email about this. We say, okay, we don't even know how to say no. We don't even know how to say yes. And pretty soon we have this massive thing built and it's about to fall down. What we need is a plumb line, something that helps us say no, helps us say yes, helps us know what to expend our energy on to God's glory. It's a plumb line. See, that was me after 10 years of ministry. I was building furiously without an accurate plumb line. A couple weeks ago, Jake Johnson invited our family to the food truck festival. Did anybody go? Food truck festival on the Seattle Mile. Nobody else went? Oh, man, next year, remedy that. Go. Here's the problem. Go with a mission. Here's why. You walk, and there's 100-plus trucks. And because I'm a completist, and, and I think Jake is too, which was like double trouble, uh, we were like, let's walk into this, and let's look at all the options first. By the time we did that... My kids were like starved and all the lines were like down the road. And so we almost left hungry, if you can believe it. We didn't know how to say yes. We didn't know how to say no. We had what many call analysis paralysis. 
It's when choices, number of choices, a number of doors, in this case, a number of trucks, actually enslave rather than free. And so what we need to do is we need to ask God, God, I know you're calling me to be faithful and not successful in life. I'll say that again. God, I know you're calling me to be faithful, not successful in life. But faithful to what? Isn't that the question? But faithful to what? And that's why the mission statement is so helpful. So for the next two weeks, I want to share with you my personal mission statement that came out of this time of rest. Why I chose it. And then I pray that it spurs you on to create and craft and to spend time with God to do the same. So what is it? Well, it's this. Show up with God's help. Show up with God's help. And this is an incredibly personal mission statement, but I, I believe it's actually universal in its application to God's people. So I want to walk through what each of those phrases mean and also... Um, uh, I, want, I want to do that within the next two weeks. And so we'll start with showing up. The first thing I believe that God is, is calling me to do in my life and in my ministry is to show up. This is true of me for many personal reasons, but it's true of all of God's people. I don't just mean showing up at church. I mean showing up in life, showing up on God's mission instead of sitting on the sidelines. The very reason God rescued his people from sin, from Satan, from our own selfish ambition is so that we would show up. Or to say it biblically, we need to do what God has prepared in advance for us to do. So if your finger has been holding the place in Ephesians 4, you can look now at verse 10 of chapter 2, rather chapter 2, not 4, where we read, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. For we are God's handiwork, Greek word there, poema, We are God's handiwork. We are his craftsmanship. We are his artisan product. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works that he himself has prepared in advance for us to do. And this statement, verse 10, comes right on the heels of one of the clearest statements about salvation by grace that comes in our Bibles. And so what God is telling us through Ephesians is that God saves us so that we would show up. That we would show up in the fullness of who we are. And who God made us to be. Because he has prepared things for us to do. For us to do. Not some vague person to do. For you to do. For your story. For how God has shaped you uniquely with all of your story. There's nothing throwaway about your past in this verse. We show up. And if we don't show up, which I'm afraid most of us don't do, and which I'm afraid I often didn't do in the past 10 years, then we are basically telling God that his handiwork is not good work. Whenever we say, no thanks, 
I'm not gifted enough to show up. No thanks, I'm not cool enough to show up. No thanks, I'm not smart enough. Can I get an amen at Hope Presbyterian Church? I'm not smart enough to lead a Bible study. I'm not smart enough to pray out loud. I don't have my theology straight enough to actually walk up to this person and to pray for them. Because I feel like the Spirit has prompted me to do that. Whenever we do this, we are saying God's handiwork doesn't work. I'm too busy to show up, we might think. In all those cases, we say, God, I know you tried, but your craftsmanship with me is trash. And you're accusing him. How many of you have seen the Netflix documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Anybody? If you haven't, you need to, but don't watch it hungry unless you're a few minutes away from Akihana. But in which you'll be sorely disappointed after you have watched that show because the show is about a sushi artisan in Japan um, named Jiro Ono. And Jiro Ono is the world's best sushi artisan that we know of. And he is the world's best, as this documentary shows us, because of his unusual devotion to his craft. He is so devoted to sushi that he eliminates anything in his life, any decision in his life, that would distract him from a greater focus on his sushi. So he rides in the same seat in his commuter bus. He wears the same clothes. Those are unnecessary decisions that will crowd his mind for his craft that he's thinking of. He is so devoted, he doesn't allow his apprentices to touch the fish until they can properly, more more accurately, perfectly do the towel service, the hot towel service. Once they got the the hot towel service down, now they can start touching the fish. He's so devoted to his craft that he only trusts one person to buy his tuna. He is so devoted to his craft that he will serve you sushi to your left side if you are a left-handed eater. And as the title implies, he's so devoted to sushi, he dreams of it. He does. He dreams of it. And so all I'm saying is that to criticize God's handiwork, how he made you, how he gifted you, how he crafted your story, would be as unthinkable as criticizing Jiro and his craft. It's unthinkable. It's even more unthinkable. God has crafted you with more attention to detail. Think about it. God has crafted you with more pride in his work. God has crafted you with more excellence. And why? So that you would show up. God wants to display his handiwork. He has chosen you to be on his mission. So why don't we show up? Let me just share what I think are five barriers I see to showing up. And I see this in my own life. I've seen it in my experience of ministry. The list is way longer, I'm certain. But here are just five ways that we justify to ourselves, ways that our mind and our hearts are in battle daily about staying on the bench instead of coming on to the field. Why do we stay on the bench? Well, first, there's the problem of false guilt. 
Uh, Guilt because of sin is real. But once we take it to the cross of Jesus, your guilt is taken away. God says your sin is separated from you as far as east is from west. Which if you think about it, is an amazing way to describe how far away our sin is from ourselves in Christ. How far away is east from west? Be careful, your brains are going to explode thinking about that. Point is, very far. Impossibly far. Do you believe that your sin is impossibly separated, impossibly far separated from you in God's sight because of Jesus? Have you been living your life with sort of a piece of paper stapled to your back with all of the things you've done wrong? And you know it doesn't really characterize you completely before God, but it's still there. It's kind of like an annoying thing you feel in the back of your shirt. It's just stapled there. It's just stapled there. All the big things you've done. So every interaction you have with God, every interaction you have with God's people, you're always feeling that chafe on your back. Here's the reality. God has separated you from your sin as far as east is from the west. There is nothing stapled onto you. Do you understand? If you are walking with that, that is called false guilt. It is inappropriate in light of what Jesus has done for you. And more than appropriate, it actually, I think, is one of the greatest contributors to all of us staying on the bench when we're called to get out into the field. We decide we are unworthy for the mission God has called us to. And so let me ask you this searching question that I don't pretend you can answer right away. But I hope you carry it out of this building. What areas of your story have you hidden from God? I'm just going to say it's very likely that those areas are also hidden from his assurance of pardon. And you need to hear God's assurance of pardon over those exact areas. So you don't walk with false guilt. But you experience freedom. Can I just say whatever came to mind when I just said that? Can I just say that it is covered by the blood of Jesus? You are forgiven. You are forever forgiven. You are forever forgiven. All of you, all of who you are, is washed clean. Second, there is the problem of false voices in our heads that keeps us on the bench. See, words have power, and and that's a really good thing. God made words and speech to have power. God himself spoke the world into being. It makes sense that we, as his image bearers, would also have powerful speech abilities, and we do. And it's a good thing, especially when someone says to you, I love you. Right? We know from experience that those who are closest to us relationally 
somehow have more powerful speech in our life. Which is why words can burn and wound and kill. See, the power of words are good when there's benediction spoken over somebody. They're very, very bad when you hear things like this. You're not good at anything. You're not smart. I mean, some of us are not showing up because our moms or our dads or our teachers or our coaches said to us, You're terrible. How dare you? You're stupid. You're immature. You're annoying. And maybe these voices weren't so straightforward, but they were a little more subtle. There were things not said that should have been said. What keeps us from showing up so often as we hear that voice and what we need to hear instead is the voice of God saying, you are my son and daughter in whom I am well pleased because you are in Christ. The Father's voice has the power to overcrowd those false voices. I think there's a third problem, and it's false scripts. Uh, When we live out a script uh, that was handed to us as a child, instead of uh, living out of our new life in Jesus. Let me explain uh, through a story. Have any of you seen that interview uh, that Stephen Colbert has with Anderson Cooper? Anybody see that interview? Happened about a couple weeks ago. Anybody? Well, you have permission to get your phones out again this morning. I'm just kidding. But do it after church and look at this thing. Because in it, uh, Colbert, there's many brilliant things in this. But one thing that struck me is when Stephen Colbert admits, he admits that his comedy career was a result of trying to make his mom laugh. And if you know anything about Colbert's life story, that ought to make you cry. She lost her husband and her, many of her boys in this tragic accident. And so Stephen Colbert and his surviving brothers would try to make their mom laugh. And it was a good day when she laughed. And so when she died a few years ago of old age, Stephen Colbert admits that he almost quit comedy. Why? He realized his whole comedy career was living out a script that was given to him as a child. Make mom laugh. What I just simply want to do is I want you to examine whether or not you are living out a script that is appropriate to the new life you have in Jesus. Interrogate these scripts with God. It might be that you're not showing up in life and in ministry because you are trapped in a false script. I think there's a fourth reason that we don't show up, and it's the idea of false security. False security. 
This is when we value the safety of anonymity and pretend safety than the risk of exposure. When we think that not showing up, whether that's in a conversation, not showing up, whether that's at church, not showing up, whether that's at work, not showing up in the biggest of ways or even the most smallest way, we don't show up because we'd rather pretend to be safe. And we don't like failure and the idea of failure. This is me. This is me 100%. I need to remember that Jesus is always in the struggle that is life. The author of Hebrews describes life, I learned recently, as a marathon, as an endurance race. I think more accurately, like a tough mutter race. Because at the end of this in Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews describes life as a boxing match. And so if you combine marathon and boxing, I think you get something like a Tough Mudder event. Here's the point. That's how the scriptures describe our life. It is conflict. So any kind of pretend isolation from that is just exactly that. It's pretend. And what we're doing is we're not showing up into the life God's calling us to live because we want safety. But the safety doesn't exist. It's false. And what's even more dangerous is Jesus isn't in that pretend safety. He's in the struggle. Because the author of Hebrews says, enter into this struggle, this endurance race, but do this as you do it. Cast your eyes on Jesus because Jesus is there. And he's the beginner of your life of faithfulness. And he's the completer of your life of faithfulness. He will see you through this conflict. He's there. And so I need to hear that, and I need to pray that daily. Joe, show up, show up, show up. Even if it's hard, show up. Don't slide away. Show up. Bring all of you to whatever it is that God is calling you to do. Especially if it's going to be hard. Because that is where Jesus is. The founder and perfecter of my faith. There's a final barrier to showing up, and it's false humility. This is when we tell ourselves and others, I don't have anything to contribute. Sounds humble, right? It sounds humble. It's like the perfect churchy way to not show up. I'm just, you know, I'm not that gifted. Let me just say, though, that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians that we're going to study more in depth here soon, he wouldn't recognize that statement. There were people saying that in Corinth. But what does he say to them? Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you're not that gifted. I get it. We're just glad you're here. Doesn't say that. He reminds them this community is, is like a body, a physical body. He says, chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
I'll say that again. Paul says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So here's the, here's, here's the deal. If you think you're a weaker part of this body, like if you were to give yourself a scale of 1 to 10, like how um, awesome versus how crummy I am in this body in terms of showing up, Okay, if you're like below five, as you do that in your mind, I want you to write down indispensable. And I want you to remember that it's God saying that about you and your gifts. Not me, not someone else, it's God. He says, indispensable. You're not throwaway. You're indispensable. He goes on, he says, and on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable. Right? Corinth had a lot in common with modern day Columbus. There are things that we think aren't as honorable, aren't as great. And in the celebrity culture that we live in and, and infiltrates everything that we think and do, it just does. There are gifts that God gives, spirit-prompted gifts that God gives all of his people. And we will, no matter what, automatically assign some of those gifts greater value because they look more like a celebrity. That's just always going to happen. And Paul is saying, okay, whatever these things are that aren't celebrity-like, that we deem less honorable, guess what Paul says about them? The apostle, he says, we bestow the greater honor. In our unpresentable parts, who feels like they are unpresentable? If there's one word to describe not showing up, it's unpresentable. You think to yourself, I am unpresentable. I've got nothing to bring or present to this mission that God has called me on. Well, Paul says, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty greater attention with which our more presentable parts do not require but God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another so if one member suffers all suffer together if one member is honored all rejoice together. And so, if I were to say, I have nothing really to contribute to your life, Paul would say, how dare you? God has given you greater honor. The people in your life need you to show up. I'll say that one more time. The people in your life need you to show up. All of you. Even if you think you're unpresentable, they need you. Here's what I need to keep hearing daily from God. Joe, when you don't show up, you're keeping from my people what is rightfully theirs. I need to hear that every single day. False humility is basically spiritual hoarding. Instead of hoarding, I want to release all that God has called me to do. To the life of others. Does that mean I'll make more mistakes? It will. It means I'll make a lot more mistakes. 
It means my life will be characterized by a lot of failure and more conflict. Things that I hide from. But it is where Jesus is. And so I think all of these ways, and hopefully, Lord willing, one of those ways struck you in your own story, but you can think of others. Falsehoods that we allow to keep us on the bench from showing up in life. They're like sleeping pills that we take to make us go to sleep to ourselves. But God calls us to be sober-minded. And sobriety is so much more than just abstaining from alcohol or drugs. I mean, it's a fine way to describe it, but it's only half of the definition. Sobriety is not just negative, it's positive. Sobriety is actually showing up alert, fully as God made you, awake and not asleep. Remember, you were saved by grace to show up as you were made. And exactly as a story your story shaped you to be. I mean, you were blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Why? To be a blessing. How are you a blessing? You show up. You help. That'll be next week. We're going to talk about help. To show up with God's help. But what you might need to hear this morning... is the truth that in God and Christ you are valuable and you are needed. So I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me. I'll say the prayer and then we can pray it together. It says, God, you have showed up in my life. I will now show up.